if you look at South Africa with respect to COVID, the first cases in March were imported. The first case was actually a very you know, well-to-do white person and his family who came back from a skiing holiday in Italy. And quite rapidly in the Western Cape and in two provinces in our country, it moved to community transmission and largely in working and lower income communities and suburbs. And you can see that uh, the spread was much more rapid in poor communities than in, in the richer communities. So, you know, whether it's TB or COVID or HIV, you will find that the poorest communities are the worst off. You've just heard from Dr. Yogan Pillay, our guest today, who is the country director of South Africa for the Clinton Health Access Initiative, or CHAI, as well as its senior global director for universal health coverage. Previously, he was deputy director general of South Africa's National Department of Health in charge of various programs, focusing on HIV AIDS, tuberculosis, and maternal and women's health. He's also co-author of the textbook of global health, with Anne Emanuel Byrne and Timothy Holtz. Dr. Pillay just described how COVID-19 is understood to have spread in South Africa. It went from a rich white person to the lower income communities, which are predominantly black. And once it got there, it spread much faster than it did in rich communities. No disease hits all people equally. Most diseases seem to hit poor people worse. For example, in 2018, 53,000 children died of diarrhea in Pakistan. That's a condition usually caused by pathogens found in the water supply that we drink. But how many of those children do you think were the children of the rich compared to the children of the poor? Almost the same number of people died from tuberculosis, which is caused by lung infection. Again, how many do you think were rich and how many were poor? Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy, where we look at the interrelations of politics and economics and talk about how political economy can encompass a lot more than just politics and economics, for example, public health. I'm your host, Numan Ali. I'm an assistant professor of political economy at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. To discuss questions of public health, I was fortunate to talk to Dr. Pillay. But before we hear more from him, it's important to discuss two terms that come up in our discussion. The first is apartheid, and the second is neoliberalism. Now, we haven't really discussed these yet, so bear with me as I explain them very briefly and probably unsatisfactorily. The first is apartheid. Now, South Africa came up in our previous discussion with Dr. Bridget Lachlan. She mentioned how in Mozambique, the Portuguese colonizers did not take over the lands of local communities anywhere near as much as they did in South Africa. Here, Dutch and British colonizers, a very small minority, ended up controlling over 90% of the land. And South Africa is a very large country relative to Mozambique, or even to many of the other countries around it. This meant that you were pushing the Africans into smaller and smaller reserves or in cities, townships, which basically got no resources. So Africans were living in very poor conditions. Now, white South Africans were also interested in exploiting the mineral wealth, not just farmland. And the labor that they needed for all of that was done by Africans. This wealth helped South Africa industrialize. And again, the Africans provided this base of cheap labor, a force of cheap labor. This 
political economy was held in place through a political system of segregation and separation based on race. That system was formalized and deepened in 1948 in what's called apartheid, which just means apartness, basically. It formalized four categories of people, Bantu or Africans, colored people who are mixed race people, Asians or Indians, mostly people from South Asia, and whites. Now, the white minority got to decide who was going to rule the country. They got the majority of voting rights, basically, despite being the minority. An anti-colonial movement did start. In 1912, the African National Congress was formed. It built alliances amongst different political parties over time, most importantly, the South African Communist Party. And it brought together the non-white populations, as well as white people of conscience who were against apartheid. And it brought in civil society organizations, especially trade unions through the Congress of South African Trade Unions, or KASATU. But outside of this formal alliance and these formal organizations, there was the incredible groundwork of organizing and mobilizing the masses, which was mostly done by women. And this was crucial throughout the 1970s and 1980s as a bunch of campaigns sought to destabilize the country and make it increasingly ungovernable on the inside. International campaigns on the outside for boycotting South African economy and society also put pressure. And so in the 1990s, an end to apartheid was negotiated, and the first properly universal elections were held in 1994. The end of apartheid kind of ties into our second term, which is neoliberalism. Now let me quote the political economist David Harvey's definition of the term. He calls it a theory of political economic practices that proposes that human well-being can best be advanced by liberating individual entrepreneurial freedoms and skills within an institutional framework characterized by strong private property rights, free markets, and free trade. Now, this should sound familiar to you from the very first podcast. What's important here is that the role of the state is seen to be minimal. It's to provide the order needed to secure private property and free markets, And the state can also help create markets in areas where there are none, for example, land, water, education, healthcare, social security, or environmental pollution. We're going to be talking about this a bit more in coming weeks. If these markets don't already exist, the state should create them. And once the markets are created, the state should leave them alone, not do much. Basically, you can sum this up by saying that neoliberal ideology says the state should stay out of the market and should facilitate the market in any way. This kind of ideology was adopted very strongly by the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank starting in the 1970s, and especially in the 1980s. And it contradicted the kind of state interventionist policies, which were pretty important both in the global north and the global south after the Second World War. In 1955, for example, the African National Congress adopted the Freedom Charter. It was a document that called for extensive state intervention in the economy, for example, taking over what is now the private property of white people so that it could be redistributed to the black population and to also regulate other aspects of the economy so as to transfer wealth from the minority who were monopolizing it toward the majority. Similar kinds of charters, statements, policies were adopted by many other anti-colonial movements and newly decolonized states. As late as 1990, the African National Congress was talking about the Freedom Charter. But in 1996, after the first elections, the ANC adopted a new program that stressed budget cuts, liberalization, which means opening up your economy to international trade, 
globalization, as we spoke about with Dr. Intan Suwandi. And they also adopted deregulation, meaning removing restrictions and constraints on what companies can do, privatization of state-owned assets, because again, the state needs to get out of the market, and a tight monetary policy, which mainly means controlling inflation. In other words, this new program that the ANC adopted reflected the structural adjustment programs that were often being encouraged by the neoliberal IMF and World Bank upon developing countries, and not just developing countries. Many would argue that, as a consequence, there has been no significant transfer of wealth from the white population to the black population as a whole in South Africa. Certainly, some black people have gotten rich, but the vast majority remain poor. So, the governmental or electoral system of apartheid were certainly dismantled, but the economic underpinnings of apartheid have not been meaningfully changed. With this very basic understanding of South African political economy, let's hear from Dr. Yogan Pillay. For the last 23 years, uh, up to the end of May this year, I uh, worked in the National Department of Health in South Africa in various capacities. I started by being the director responsible for the district health system. Uh, I progressed to being the chief director responsible for strategic planning. And for the last 10 years, I was the deputy director general responsible for health programs. And these spanned everything from HIV and TB through to the non-communicable diseases and malaria, as well as food control. I was also responsible for overseeing the global fund programs, as well as the PEPFAR programs in the country. Since the 1st of June, I joined the Clinton Health Access Initiative as the country director for South Africa and a senior director for universal health coverage, uh, which will enable me to work uh, not only in South Africa, but in the other uh, 20-odd countries that uh, CHAI has offices in. So what got you started on the road to public health? Why are you doing this? Basically, what got you motivated? So the motivation is really around trying to effect change at a population level. And, you know, that's the, that was my interest in, in public health. And I joined the government uh, service because uh, it was fairly clear to me that the biggest impact one could have was to work where the levers of power exist. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that working for government means you're working in a fairly large bureaucracy um, with, you know, all of the challenges of working in a bureaucracy. And in South Africa, uh, the bureaucracy takes a particular form because we have nine provinces, 52 districts, and then, of course, the National Department. And my role in the National Department was to focus on norms and standards, finding the money, monitoring and supporting provinces and districts to achieve particular health outcomes. The uh, other good thing about working in the National Department was that you could work across government departments so that you could kind of get a sense of what it is that health contributes to health outcomes and what other government departments either contribute or don't contribute. Uh, that said, of course, uh, that wasn't a particularly easy walk because you know every government department gets its own funding. So in a sense, they run verticalized programs. But what's interesting to me is that despite being so deeply involved in the bureaucracy and the Department of Health, you somehow found the time to 
also co-author a textbook on international health. And that goes back to your training. Uh, I think you have a PhD from Johns Hopkins. So can you tell us a little bit about how you um, manage your time, but not, not, not just time management, but how you see the intellectual uh, role that you're playing in authoring a textbook going with the kind of administrative role that you're playing? Yeah, and I'm a firm, firm believer that, uh, you know, you have to be both reflective as a bureaucrat, you've got to read and you've got to write about things. And if you don't do that, and, you know, I've got a significant number of peer-reviewed uh, publications on a number of topics, everything from, you know, multi-drug resistant TB through to pre- prevention of mother-to-child transmission. So, you know, I have had an interest in uh, thinking and writing uh, throughout my career. So, you know, this, uh, this writing the book was a, was a big task. I mean, I won't <laughs> underplay the fact that it uh, required a, a lot of, uh, a lot of time, uh, energy. And, uh, you know, I also obviously had to, uh, suspend some of my, my activities, uh, in communities, working in communities with my family, et cetera, to, to ensure that we, we wrote the book together. But one of the things that, you know, I've always said is that the bureaucrats are often thought of as being not quite empty vessels, but people who don't think a lot. Uh, they might be doing something, but they don't think a lot. So, you know, in my career and in supporting, mentoring and supervising my, the, the people that I worked with, I have been at pains throughout my career to get them to be as engaged as I was in aligning myself and working with researchers trying to figure out what questions researchers should be answering through their research and also writing together with together with researchers. So I, I must confess, I wasn't all that successful in convincing my colleagues in the Department of Health always to write, uh, but I, I think I was successful in at least getting them to read uh, so that they could be innovative and, and notwithstanding the bureaucracy, as agile as possible in getting uh, new knowledge into implementation and, you know, into the field, so to speak. So, you know, that was my mission for the last 20-something years. Well, maybe on, on this, let me ask you a final question. I read somewhere that part of your motivation for going into public health was related to the kind of anti-apartheid struggle uh, and being part of that encouraged you to have a more critical approach to these kinds of questions. Could you tell us a bit more about that? I, you know, I became politically aware when I was uh, around 13, 14 years of age. And it was sparked by, in my first year of high school, the school that I was in under apartheid was an Indian-only school. And uh, you know, as you know, the history of South Africa is that every so-called race group had their own educational department and schools that were separated, hospitals were separated, etc. So I had a very politically aware teacher who raised this particular issue. There was a donation made to the school of books from the, the school that was uh, for white kids. And, you know, we were quite excited about getting these books. And my teacher then said, well, can you uh, think about why it is that you're getting books from people who have discarded them? You know, what makes you a second-class citizen in your own country? So that kind of, you know, raised my awareness about the uh, discrimination that we, we suffered. And of course, you know, we couldn't go to the same parks, the, the same beaches as, as other, other race groups. Um, even though Indians relative to uh, black South Africans, 
you know, had certain privileges that uh, that uh, my friends who were African didn't have. So, you know, I've been politically aware since I was a teenager and uh, at, throughout my university uh, career and post that, I've, you know, I've been involved in political and uh, social activism. So, you know, it's not surprising that uh, in my work, you know, I've been equally aware and, uh, you know, I, I call myself a health activist like many of my colleagues. Okay, so maybe we can then begin by asking some basic questions about public health. One of the things that you talk about in your book is distinguishing between a biomedical approach, a behavioral approach, and a political economy approach to diseases. Now, if I get this correctly, a biomedical approach would say, if you're sick, it's because something entered your body, say a pathogen, or something's out of alignment. And what we need to do is to target that, attack that, say using medicine or some kind of biological intervention, and then that will fix you. A behavioral approach might say, well, why did that thing get in your body in the first place? Maybe you didn't wash your hands. Maybe you didn't boil the water that you were drinking. And so you've got to change your lifestyle, you know, start eating healthier food so that you don't get sick. And these two approaches, I think, are the, are the most default and common approaches. But you make a case for a political economy approach. And it might not be intuitive to understand what political economy has to do with health. So can you explain that to us? And maybe you can give us some examples around tuberculosis or, or HIV or, or something that, that really struck you in your practice and your analysis. So if you look at, at the health outcomes of any country, you will find that there is typically a social gradient with poor folk in that community or in that country having worse outcomes relative to people who are richer. And the question is why? It's not about their genes or the genetic makeup necessarily. It's usually about the position in society, their position relative to the economy, their access to health services, their ability to eat nutritious food, their ability to prevent uh, diseases um, because they don't have access to clean water and sanitation. So it's fairly clear, you know, and it's been clear certainly in the South African context, you know, since the 1940s, that unless you have a particular position in society and have access not only to, uh, to political power, but to economic power, you will have negative outcomes. Uh, the African National Congress, quite interestingly, in, over the, uh, past the, the turn of the century, around 1912, made a number of submissions to the then government, uh, which was run by the British, as it turns out, where they made this point about the fact that uh, the health outcomes of Africans were significantly worse than the health outcomes of Europeans. But the point they made then, which is true then and is true now under COVID, is that the health of the Europeans will never be secure if the health of the Africans didn't improve. And of course, they were talking there specifically about communicable diseases uh, because you know the Africans were working on farms owned by whites, were working in the gardens of homes owned by whites and in, as uh, people working in the household of people uh, who were much uh, more privileged than they were, who happened to be white at the time. So, you know, it is clear at the turn of the 19th, uh, 20th century, it's clear now under COVID that depending on your position in society, you will have worse or better outcomes. And, you know, that's the point we make uh, in the book, uh, in chapter seven of our book, about why we should be talking about the societal determinants of health uh, fairly specifically, because as we say in, in the book, 
that it's far less to do with the specific individual and the settings in which they live rather than the structure of society and their relative position in the global economy. Uh, so those are the kinds of things that you know we stress in the way in which we articulate the, the political economy. So it's not just about the e- economies and where you sit in the economy of your own country, but how the economy of your country sits relative to the rest of the world. Uh, and you know that's that's the kind of approach approach we've taken to the societal determinants of health. If you take, for example, TB or more recently COVID. If you look at the UK, for example, and you look at the health outcomes of people with COVID in the UK, you will find that black and brown people have far worse outcomes uh, with the same virus relative to uh, to Europeans uh, in the UK. And the same is true of, uh, of the US and Canada as well. Uh, if you look at South Africa, you will find the same. Uh, with respect to COVID, the first cases in March were imported. And it, the first case was actually a a, a very you know well-to-do white person and his family who came back from a skiing holiday in Italy and uh, quite rapidly in the Western Cape and in in, in two provinces in the in our country it moved to community uh, transmission and largely in working and lower-income communities and suburbs uh, and you can see that uh, the spread was much more rapid in poor communities than in in the richer communities. But the virus was imported, as I say, from Italy in the case of South Africa. So, you know, whether it's TB or COVID or HIV, you will find that the poorest communities are the worst off. You will also find, if you look at HIV, for example, you will find that what's called key populations and vulnerable communities and people being worse off relative to others. So if you look at the definition of key populations for HIV, you will find that it's those that are marginalized and those that are discriminated against. It could be people in prisons. It could be uh, sex workers. It could be gay men, transgender persons, as well as people who inject drugs. And those are marginalized communities uh, within the population. And this is true regardless of which country you're talking about. These communities are discriminated against, marginalized, They have poorer access to health services. Uh, They are discriminated against even by the health service themselves. So so it's not about the individual and what they do at an individual level, but it's how society responds and reacts to them. You know, because in in day-to-day activities, I'm now worried about, you know, in a particular hospital, I've been, been able to reduce neonatal and maternal mortality against targets we had set, you know. Of course, that's important but that needs to be located in why are we even looking at in that particular hospital maternal and neonatal outcomes you know it's because that hospital is a public sector hospital serving the poorest of the poor who have very little assets um, that they can use as individuals to pull themselves up so just focusing at the individual level to get us people to pull them up pull themselves up by the bootstraps is not going to work. So I've got to think about, you know, how, where this hospital sits in the political economy of South Africa and in the world. There's, a, there's quite a bit that you, you discuss so that individuals, whatever they do, uh, that's one thing, but it's about how society responds to them, how society gives them opportunities to, say, make a good living, to eat nutritious food, to access health care. 
And then you also mentioned that it's located in a global structure also, that there's a global political economy that we have to understand. And maybe on that, I'd like to ask you about structural adjustment. So one, this is a huge theme in, in your book, and in fact, in a lot of public health literature, is that structural adjustment programs have not only impacted people's health, but also the capacity of states to deliver health care. So maybe we can address each of these things in, in turn. And the first thing I'd like to ask you is, what is structural adjustment? What does it look like in South Africa or in other cases which you may have experience with? And what kinds of effects does that have on people's health? So let me let me start with the issue of you know the position of uh, countries and health outcomes in a country relative to the global economy. I think the best example of the impact of the global economy on nation states is around the role of transnational corporations in the context of nutrition and food. So if you look at the increasing obesity and non-communicable diseases in low and middle income countries you will see that it's fueled by the demographic and epi-transitions in those countries and the introduction of fast foods by transnational companies, high in trans fats, high in sugar, and high in salt. Uh, They are very convenient. They are relatively cheap, but they are not nutritious. Uh, And what they do is they really undermine the traditional foods, the indigenous foods, Uh, And they result in people not being able to fend for themselves, but then introduced into the into the cash economy, you know. And many of these individuals are the poorest of the poor as well. So, you know, transnationals have a specific role to play in the way in which uh, NCDs, in particular, have arisen in in uh, in low and middle income countries. And we will, you know, we really have to deal deal with this issue if we are going to ensure that the gains we've made on the communicable diseases side are not eroded um, by increasing and non-communicable diseases, and as a consequence, increasing morbidity and mortality uh, from non-communicable diseases, uh, including, you know, diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular diseases, and the cancers in particular. So coming back to uh, the question you raised about structural adjustment, it's either imposed internally by neoliberal uh, governments or it can be imposed from external sources like the IMF and the Global and the World Bank in particular. And we've seen the World Bank and the IMF in particular applying these to low and middle income countries throughout the world. Certainly in the African context, we've seen it in many countries. The closest to South Africa is Zimbabwe, which has gone through since the mid-80s in a series of structural adjustment programs that have left that country, uh, notwithstanding the fact that you know, they've also had political challenges, uh, at least in, since the mid-90s, poorer, whereas they were the kind of breadbasket of uh, Southern Africa. They are now really a uh, a neglected state so the the way that, the way this happens whether it's from a neoliberal uh, party in power in a country or imposed externally is that they they ask countries to reduce expenditure especially on 
public services. And what that means is employing fewer and fewer people to deliver public services. And these are in particular health services, education, as well as social services. So they reduce the safety net, the social safety net. They reduce access to health services. They have historically promoted fee-for-services in many countries. Um, and of course, all of that then increased unemployment because the state had to reduce the number of people they employed. It increased inequities uh, within countries and it decreased the capacity of the state to provide services. And the basic presumption was that these are services that would be more efficiently provided by the private sector. And of course, the argument was then that what these countries had to do was decrease the size of the public sector and increase or create the conditions for the private sector to grow rapidly. And of course, you know, by their own admission, uh, the World Bank and the IMF, by their own admission, structural adjustment has failed. And we've seen, you know, any number of examples of this. The best example of when a country said no to structural adjustment is, um, is Malaysia uh, in the 80s. They went through the same crisis, the oil crisis in the 80s, and they said, well, they, they, won't, they won't implement structural adjustment. They would deal with it on their own terms. And there's, you know, there's a lot written about the Asian tigers and how they dealt with development and whether it's import-led uh, or export-led uh, economic development in, in the Asian tigers. So, you know, things have changed now. I don't think we can use the same mechanisms that the Asian tigers used to develop. Uh, so there needs to be a new developmental model uh, for most of the countries in Africa. And clearly the prescriptions of the World Bank and IMF are not the right prescriptions if the prescriptions are either the same form of structural adjustment that they promoted in the 80s and 90s or a kind of slightly uh, adapted version of it. Uh, certainly in South Africa right now, because of our growing debt burden, the IMF's prescription is that, uh, one, reduce the size of the public sector, two, free up the private sector, so reduce the the uh, the laws that or eliminate the laws that provide protection to workers uh, and uh, stimulate the, the growth of the private sector. So, you know, it's taken off a slightly different form. Uh, I guess it's a structural adjustment that uh, is structural adjustment of the human face, I think, is, a, is another way of looking at it, but it's structural adjustment nonetheless. And I think the uh, the impact of COVID on the public uh, system and, and public health in particular, with, and whether it's the UK or US or South Africa, has shown that unless you invest in public health, you will not be able to deal with pandemics. And I think uh, the, the Director General of WHO was very uh, strident in this message when he said on a webinar, that was hosted by the EU uh, about two weeks ago, that in, there are three things that countries need to do to ensure that they survive this pandemic and the next one, which is sure to come. And that firstly is invest in public health, which includes surveillance and all of the rest of it that goes with public health. Secondly, focus on a one health 
plan for the country, which means joining up different government departments, whether they are dealing with climate change, plant health, or animal health, or human health. And the third is to ensure that you have a government-led approach to dealing with, uh, with pandemics. Uh, so I think those, those three things show the importance of having a strong state that can respond to, uh, to pandemics. And, you know, pandemics are just an acute version of what you would find in an insidious uh, disease process, you know, whether it's NCDs or mental health or uh, oral health. You know, these things give you uh, negative outcomes over time, whereas pandemics accelerate and reduce the, the time period in which you see the effects of these, these kinds of diseases. So, so I think, I think the, if the world does not learn from the, the impact at a societal and an, at an economic level, the impact of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, I'm not sure what it will take. You know? And if you read all of the, the public health messaging that has come up, arisen since, since March this year, you will not find a big difference between what we are saying now and what's in the Alma-Ata Declaration of 1978. So we, we learned nothing then in terms of the importance of public health, the importance of primary health care, the importance of community participation, the importance of intersectoral action, and the importance of global solidarity as opposed to global security issues. If we learn nothing now, that we should have learned 42 years ago, then I'm not sure, you know, what it is that we can learn uh, in the next 40 years. I, I want to come back to the Alma-Ata Declaration and, and primary health care and the importance of that. I, I just want to ask one more kind of question on, on structural adjustment. And it can be, you can give a brief answer because I think you've already given us a very good overview of the importance of the state and the importance of public health. But there are some people who would argue, look, neoliberalism, and structural adjustment has actually been good over the last 40 years. And that's because prior to neoliberalism or structural adjustment, it's not like you had equity in health. It's not like you had better health outcomes. On the contrary, if you look at what's happening today, you can see a reduction in mortality. You can see an increase in the availability of drugs and treatments. You can see better public policy approaches. And as a consequence, those kinds of successes should be attributed to neoliberal or market-friendly policies. So how would you respond to that? Look, I'm not sure that that is entirely true, because if you look at the rate of uh, decline, and if you look at the rate of decline in disadvantaged communities relative to uh, the global average, you will find significant inequalities. So yes, neoliberalism has worked, but it's worked for some, not for everyone. And I think that's something that uh, we need to figure out how to message. Because otherwise, you know, if you take the global averages uh, and you take, for example, the fact that the World Bank will tell you that there are fewer kids dying, that poverty, the floor of poverty has risen, uh, et cetera. But, you, you know, you, you have to question what the poverty line, uh, what poverty line is used by the, by the World Bank, for example. I mean, who can or should live on $2 you know, and, and why should some people live on $2 uh, a day or a week or a month uh, relative to 
you know, the number of billionaires that uh, have arisen out of, out of neoliberalism. So I think that the fact that inequalities have grown and that the measurements we are using are inadequate should tell us a lot about the kind of discourse around exactly what you point out, Norman, that, you know, some people would argue that neoliberalism has, liberalism has worked. Yes, it's worked, but it's worked for some at the disadvantage of others. I mean, if you look at employment rates right now and the amount and the number of, of jobs that are insecure, the number of insecure jobs have arisen in every country, including the US the, and, and many parts of Europe. Uh, and the question is, why has that been the case? Um, and what are, what's the impact of that on society and on health outcomes, including levels of alienation and mental health issues? For sure. I think mental health is something that we often overlook when we're talking about health. But I want to bring this back, I guess, just uh, a bit of a more discussion on, on capitalism, or rather, you started by talking about transnational corporations and the impact that they can have on food and then the impact that has on health. You talked about how market-oriented policies reduce the role of the state and public health, introduce fees for services, the effect that that had on people's health. And just now you've talked about insecure jobs or precarious jobs and how the tension about whether or not I'll have a paycheck next week can increase alienation, mental distress. So we're talking about the role of these corporations. And then the irony in that is that much of public health these days is also being bankrolled by the very same, sometimes literally the same corporations. And that has a longer tradition with, say, the Rockefeller Foundation, but nowadays it's the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is, I think, one of the most significant contributors even to the World Health Organization. They may give more money than the United States government at this point. And then, of course, there's stuff like the Clinton Health Access Initiative, which is maybe smaller relatively, but still plays an important role in setting agendas. And this has been called philanthrocapitalism. So it's philanthropic in the sense that these are charitable organizations, but there's also capitalism attached to it. So can you tell us what philanthrocapitalism means and why does it concern practitioners and scholars like yourself? Why is that not necessarily seen as a good thing? That's a very good point you make. You know, I, I like the work of uh, Mariana Mazazukoto, you know, who's been writing a lot recently about uh, the role of the state uh, relative to the role of capital. I think she's showing us a new way of, of thinking about the intersection between capital and, and the state. And she's been arguing, I think, quite uh, both legitimately and credibly about, you know, what the state should be doing, can do, and does well and what should be left to the market, but not an unregulated market. So, you know, I wouldn't be arguing for a social formation that excludes private accumulation, uh, because I do think there's a role for that. But I, I would absolutely agree that there's a strong role for the state to play. Now, in terms of um, how we need to think about uh, uh, capitalism and uh, and what its role is in society, I think the first thing to say is that uh, it's not one thing. Uh, so there are many definitions of philanthrocapitalism that uh, you know one needs to unpick. And there's, a, there's many ways of philanthrocapitalism interdigitating with society and civil society organizations. 
and I think uh, you know what we should be what we should be looking at is a much more granular way of thinking about it because quite frankly I don't think it's going away um, there are quite a few dangers in philanthropic capitalism I mean if you take some of these uh, these large uh, philanthropies which offer fairly large amounts of money if you take the Gates Foundation for example you know while they have a board it's fairly clear from all the things that one reads about uh, the way in which uh, the board operates that the founder uh, and his wife are significant players in deciding what gets done. That said, there are lots of smart people in the Gates Foundation who are technocrats uh, who are thinking about things in a, in a you know, quite a substantial way. So if you look at the definitions of uh, philanthropic capitalism, uh, you will see that there's a definition uh, by Bishop and Green which argue that you know, a cynical way to think about it is how the rich can save the world, right? But they save the world on their terms. And then you have, you know, what's called customary philanthropy, which looks at how ancient societies offered assistance as an alternative. You know, giving alms, for example, uh, of relieving the suffering of the poor and the disadvantaged was one way of providing. Uh, support to the poor. Then, of course, we have entrepreneurial philanthropy, uh, which, you know, wants to, and, and you might argue that the Gates Foundation is an example of entrepreneurial philanthropy because, you know, their giving is related to trying out new innovations and getting people to be entrepreneurial about the way they do it. I mean, one example is the way in which the Gates Foundation set up in India their HIV program. It was on entrepreneurial lines. Um, and you might argue that, uh, you know, strategic philanthropy, which is quite different, is where the funders make strategic decisions about where to invest and the power lies in the hands of the funders. And again, the Gates Foundation might be an example of that. Alternatives to that would be trust-based philanthropy or what's called participatory grant making, you know, which might still use the money that is generated from profits of large companies, you know, whether it's the Gates Foundation or Jack Ma's foundation or whomever. So I think, you know, we need to kind of think through how to, uh, not to justify philanthropy, but to use it uh, for, for good, uh, where it can be used for good. And I think, uh, you know, trust-based philanthropy and participatory grant making, you know, both of which it can be argued seeds decision-making, uh, both at the strategic level and at the, at the granular level, to communities that uh, the funders aim to serve would be the best way to think about it. So, you know, where a grant is given, a block grant is given to a community to, for example, on their own terms, improve maternal and neonatal care rather than it being decided in, you know, whether it's New York or Washington or, or London would be the way to think about it. Um, so I think there are ways of, Dealing with uh, dealing with philanthropic capitalism um, in ways that are different to some of the current uh, some of the players in the in the field, uh, the Gates Foundation included. I think one of the issues that I've come across uh, with respect to philanthropic capitalism, I guess I can I can lay out a couple. One that is concerning is what is called vertical 
delivery, I think, or vertical health, where something like the Gates Foundation will set an agenda. It might be about HIV or it might be that they want to eradicate polio. So uh, Gates Foundation is very important in Pakistan, for example, to try and eradicate polio. But when they kind of set that agenda, because they're bringing so much money with them and also clout, then they also bring particular ways of dealing with it. They'll say, we want a technical intervention, like we want to come up with a vaccine for this. And then all of the resources of that government or state then kind of get crowded into that one program. So in Pakistan, you've got a lady health workers program, which is supposed to deliver primary health care, especially to women and children. But then those people then get used to implement the polio vaccine program, often at the expense of other things that they might have otherwise been doing. And instead of actually breeding appreciation, a lot of people get resentful. They're like, we have so many problems. We have so many health issues. And the only thing you guys care about is this one thing, polio. Or we have examples of people in South Africa who might have had cancer, were not getting treatment for that, and then uh, deliberately got infected with HIV so that they could get access to the resources which were there for HIV treatment or HIV patients. And that kind of crowding in of resources, that those kind of perverse incentives is something that people are worried about. And how, how have you uh, maybe dealt with that or approached that? No, it's the same, you know, with bilateral organizations as well. So the PIFAR program is another example of exactly what you said about funding, you know, HIV programs to the exclusion of everything else. Uh, so vertical programs, by their very nature, whether they are funded by governments or whether they are funded by external parties, have the, the challenge of uh, crowding out uh, other services. The advantage of the vertical programs is that uh, you can see uh, change quickly. Uh, the question is, uh, would that be sustained, you know, especially when the donor leaves? Uh, and that's always been the issue. Uh, so... The uh, major challenges with vertical programs, as you correctly point out, is that um, they do ring-fence the budgets, they do ring-fence human resources, they do then set up vertical supply chain um, systems, they do have a preference for indicators that relate to that particular vertical program, and uh, they do have the effect of crowding out other services. So you might, it might result in a significant neglect of other services. And we've seen that throughout the world uh, with vertical programs. That said, you, you know, the challenge is then, you know, what, what is the alternative? The alternative has to be universal health coverage and universal health coverage, not in a technical, technicist sense only, but in the sense that it focuses on how to strengthen societies and how to strengthen society's resilience, uh, not just with respect to health, but with respect to all of the contributors to, to uh, good health outcomes, uh, you know, which would include uh, proper education, uh, housing, sanitation, water, transportation, etc. So maybe you can expand on this, and this goes back to the Alma-Ata Declaration that you were talking about. For those of us who don't know what the Alma-Ata Declaration is and what its significance is, can you tell us a little bit about that and why it is so significant and what kind of role it could play precisely in the kinds of issues we've been talking about, COVID or the issues with vertical programs? So the world came together in 
1978 uh, at the International Primary Healthcare Conference in what was then Alma-Ata, which is now Almaty. It's now in Kazakhstan. The town was at that time in the former Soviet Union. And the UNICEF and uh, the WHO brought together a range of partners, including civil society organizations, to think about the health of the global community. And they came up with the slogan of health for all by the year 2000. And at that conference, um, they hammered out what's called the Alma-Ata Declaration. And the declaration was based on health being a human right. And there was a call in that declaration for a new international economic order um, because there was a recognition at that point that you know many of the so-called developing countries at the time uh, needed a new approach, a new global approach to generating better health outcomes, and that was primary health care. What was agreed at Alma-Ata was a comprehensive approach and therefore a fairly comprehensive basket of health services delivered at the primary health care level in an intersectoral way with significant community involvement. Unfortunately, soon after the Alma-Ata Declaration was adopted, uh, led by specifically the World Bank and IMF, who argued that poor countries will not be able to afford a comprehensive package of services. Um, there was then a big debate about comprehensive versus selective primary health care. And throughout the 70s uh, and 80s, we then defaulted to a selective approach to primary health care, which reinforced these verticalized programs. So had we stuck with a comprehensive set of services through the 70s and 80s, we would today have been closer to both uh, universal health coverage as well as achieving what are now known as the sustainable development goals. So it was derailed largely by the uh, financial um, sector uh, led by the World Bank and IMF, who argued that countries will not be able to afford a comprehensive set of services delivered at primary health care level. And, you know, we are, I think, reaping the negative effects of that uh, today, well, ever since, but especially today, with our inability to respond to COVID because of the underinvestment in health as well as education and social services uh, in much, much of the world. The Scandinavian countries, I think, have fared significantly better together with countries, uh, some, some of the countries in the East, including J Japan, Thailand, uh, South Korea, uh, because they invested in public health. So as you pointed out, if we had comprehensive healthcare, we would be in a much better position right now. But what do you see in this world today, especially in global South countries, whether that's South Africa or a country like Pakistan or India, what are the kind of political and economic prerequisites then so that we can actually get primary health care and meaningful primary health care in the way that you're discussing? So it's clear to me that we need a very vibrant civil society. And, you know, I think that the, the, this COVID moment should not be lost in trying to get civil society 
to start demanding real economic benefits and new economic order, both at the national level as well as the global level. And unless we use this COVID moment, we, I think, will be lost. You know, if the capitalists of the world don't understand the impact that COVID has had on the world economy, uh, given the economic losses that they have suffered, then we would have lost this moment. And it's, it's really a, a moment where intellectuals, academics, civil society organizations, and progressive forces really need to come together to articulate what this new world order should look like uh, and what nation states should be doing to strengthen the capacity of governments and find a new role for the private sector. And I think that uh, the lessons of COVID should be learned and should be articulated in ways that find practical manifestations in social movements, in intellectuals coming up with new ways of thinking about the role of the state vis-a-vis the role of the private sector. You know, we could return to aspects of the welfare state, you know, but in, and, and I think in some ways, you know, many countries have been forced to do that. If you just look at what countries had to do in terms of supporting uh, the unemployed, uh, supporting people who have little access to food in terms of feeding schemes. So the question is, you know, what and how do we build on that to improve the capacity of the state to respond? And I think, you know, one of the things that we have to do is to, to increase the taxation of these transnational organizations. You know, for transnationals to pay as little tax and to, and to have as many tax havens as they currently have is, is something that should not be, uh, which should be something we should all resist. So we, we need to rethink the tax regime, and we can only do that with global solidarity. So we've, we've got to find new ways of engendering global solidarity and learn the lessons from COVID. Whether we learn or not is another matter. I, I personally am not that optimistic that we will learn. I think, I think if you look at the people who've gained from the COVID, you will find that the Amazons of the world have gained significantly and a significant number of billionaires have gotten richer while the rest of the world has become poorer. So I think the COVID has, has not only shown uh, that, that the inequities have grown, but uh, unless we are able to rethink the way in which we do business, I think uh, the uh, inequalities might well grow because of COVID. That's exactly what I was thinking, is that maybe some capitalists will learn a lesson, but many others have actually taken bailouts from the state to get richer. And that kind of pessimism, I think, ties into something that struck me while I was reading your book. So whether it's tuberculosis or HIV AIDS in Southern Africa, you point out how that is the consequence of colonial and current class structures, land dispossession, authoritarian regimes, racial discrimination, gender, environment, debt, structural adjustment, austerity, labor migration, poverty, desperation. Basically, there's very little that's not on this list. And if I'm a young person, you know, many, many people listening to this will be students or youth, especially in this moment where young people may not see a bright future for them. And I'm talking about even the elite youth or, or well-off youth 
never mind those working class youth or those youth who belong to marginalized communities who even before this crisis would not have had that much opportunity. If I'm a young person and I see gradualist and incrementalist suggestions with cynicism, how would you speak to a young person right now? And the things that you've said about global solidarity and all of that, what do I do? How do I intervene based on your experience uh, inside government and, and outside of it? Look, you know, when I was growing up, we had apartheid, right? And th- that's what brought many of us together across race and class lines. And that's why the, the, you know, the ANC, the African National Congress, is thought of as a very broad church because it brought people from you know, many different walks of life together to fight one evil, which was apartheid. Uh, I think we need to find that single galvanizing force now to bring people together of all genders, races, class, because I think the, uh, the planet you know, is at stake. It's not just individuals and, and nation states, it's the planet that is at stake now. So it's, I think it's the very essence of not only our humanity, but uh, the possibility of humans existing. And I think, you know, the idea of thinking about planetary health might be the galvanizing force that uh, brings people together to, uh, to kind of see that there is a, not only a, a, a economic and a social crisis, but there's an existential crisis now. Um, and that, uh, you know, if we do not work together with a single vision of of uh, saving the planet and saving humanity. You know, there's really no future for anyone, uh, rich or poor, uh, regardless of where you're living in the world. And not only those that are living on island, in, on island states that are, you know, because of climate change, are gonna disappear into the ocean. Um, so we've got to find, you know, a single galvanizing force and maybe planetary uh, health uh, might be that single galvanizing force like apartheid was for many of us in the, you know, in, in, at least when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. 